Hello and welcome to the podcast Terrorism and Political Violence, a podcast produced by the journal Terrorism and Political Violence in collaboration with Utrecht University. This podcast is comprised of two types of episodes. In Issues Up Close, editors of the TPV Journal will discuss a range of subjects from prominent issues covered by the journal, such as the history of terrorism, its causes and consequences, questions concerning political violence, and major global trends and threats. In our Book Talks episodes, editors will host conversations with experts from across the field to discuss their current work. Today's Book Talks episode is the first in a two-part series on the topic Financing Terrorism, hosted by Beatrice de Graaf, editor at TPV and a historian at Utrecht University. She will kick off the series by interviewing Jessica Davis on her new book, Illicit Money, Financing Terrorism in the 21st Century. We hope you enjoy this episode. So today I'm very happy to welcome Jessica Davis uh, with our podcast because Jessica is an international expert on terrorism and illicit financing. She's president and principal consultant with Inside Threat Intelligence as well as president of the Canadian Association for Security and Intelligence Studies. She has a long career in intelligence analysis with the Canadian military, a transition to a policy role and then became a team leader with Canada's financial intelligence unit. And her last role in government was as a senior strategic analyst. So she covers pretty much every analytical level, the operational, the tactical, the strategical, managing and um, researching the indicators uh, of terrorism financing. And she now works to bring evidence-based solutions to the private and the public sector. She is in a PhD program at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University and has published extensively. We will uh, today focus on her book Illicit Money Financing, Terrorism in the 21st Century. It was released in September 2021, so very recently. But I can't help myself, but I also want to bring in the previous work that you did on women in modern terrorism. For example, uh, From Liberation Wars to Global Jihad and the Islamic State, which came out in 2017. So, Jessica, please tell us, why did you write this book about illicit money? Well, first of all, I want to thank you so much for having me on the podcast. It's really wonderful to be here and to be in interviewed by you, another expert on many of these matters as well. Um, so I wrote the book on illicit financing, on illicit money, um, mostly because I realized that there, while there was a lot of really good work that had been done on terrorist financing, we were lacking an overarching framework to really understand all of the different mechanisms involved. So there has been a lot of work done on things like um, how terrorists move money, how they raise it, but there's a lot of different mechanisms that have been kind of ignored, partly because of a lack of information um, and partly because I think that, you know, unless you're working in that area, it's very difficult to see all of the different mechanisms that are involved. So I really wanted to bring all of the really good work that's been done together um, to create an overarching framework. And there's also a number of other little areas that I wanted to address as well. You know, for instance, there's there is some discussion about the difference between organizational and operational financing um, between in, in terms of um, terrorist financing. But 
I think that that is an underdeveloped area. So a lot of people do talk about it. Colin Clark talks about it in his book. Um, but this is a kind of place where I think that as practitioners really need to develop their awareness of that difference. So, you know, there's really big differences between how a plot or an attack is financed versus how a big organizational structure like the Islamic State is financed. And it has significant implications for um, how we counter that activity as well. So that's sort of the overview. Yes, thank you. Very important points that you're raising, uh, especially the distinction between the organization and the operationalization level. But first, let, let me keep up a quote to you. That's a quote that you start your book with. You write, terrorism financing in the 21st century is a complex affair. Dick's this complexity has been confounded by a superficial public understanding. Can you say a little bit more about that? Because on the one hand, it makes perfectly sense to focus on terrorism financing. On the other hand, there's so much cheap talk about it. And especially also the critique that terrorism is cheap. So you do not need to focus on the financing. Yeah, I think there's a, there's a number of things there that I'd like to talk about. So I think the superficiality of some of the conversations around terrorist financing really has to do with how it's portrayed in the media. So it's not so much about the academic or research or literature, um, but you'll see headlines of really exorbitant sums of money when we're talking about a group, you know, hundreds of millions of um, whatever local currency, but then very little context in terms of what that actually means. Um, so first of all, you know, there, there's a lot of this conversation around these huge sums of money, but when we unpack it and realize that most terrorist organizations and even operational cells have a lot of expenses that go along with it. They're not really generating these huge profits. Um, so I think that's part of the superficiality of it. And the other piece in terms of the critique about the cost of terrorism, I think that it conflates two things. The first one, um, I think it underestimates the effects that counter-terrorist financing practices and policies have had on driving the cost of terrorism down. Um, so, you know, when we think back about terrorism, we talk about the 9-11 attacks costing $500,000. Um, and now that's closer to $750,000 if we're doing inflation adjustments. Um, but the reaction from the international community in terms of countering the financing of terrorism, I suspect, has actually contributed to the rise of lone actor extremism and that low cost of terrorism. So I think that we need to pick that apart. The other piece of it in terms of the low cost of terrorism argument is that it really only focuses on one aspect of counter-terrorist financing. And counter-terrorist financing, in my view, is about, it's certainly about regulations, um, the mandatory reporting, it's about sanctions, but it's also about financial intelligence. And so when we just talk about the cost of terrorism as being low and therefore, you know, counter-terrorist financing doesn't work, it ignores the very real and important work, uh, important contribution of financial intelligence to overall investigations. Yes, th thank you very much for that. C can we linger on a bit on this topic? Because it's a very important topic and your book makes a very um, substantial argument here that you say terrorism is cheap. Yes, but it may have been made cheap by counterterrorism interventions. And still, even although it is cheap, terrorists still need to get some money. Um, to, give, to give a brief example, you, you write about this in your book. Can you tell us how expensive or inexpensive recent terrorist attacks 
are. You mentioned the 9-11 attacks. But for example, can you say something out about the Bataclan attack in 2015, the Nice attack or the London Bridge attack? Yes. So I think generally speaking, most terrorist attacks, the cost of terrorism has been going down. Um, I think that when we when we look at specific attacks, um, it's very difficult, first of all, to get a really accurate accounting of exactly what was spent, what was what was what the, what the attack cost, because we tend to underestimate all of the different little expenses that are incurred. So, you know, a good example is for a lot of operational cells, they're circulating through burner cell phones at a pretty high volume. For And depending on the size of the cell, this could be two or three burner phones every week. It could be 10 or 15 burner phones every two days. And like these, these little costs add up. Um, so I think that understanding what the, what the attack cost is very difficult. I mean, even as an intelligence professional, I had a very difficult time even with the vast amounts of information that I had access to, really figuring out what the cost was. But it's also it also distracts us from some of the more important elements of the financial intelligence piece. So yes, the costs are important to understand, but it's really important to understand what the expenditures mean from an investigative perspective. So if you're looking at individuals who are you think are planning an attack or you think are preparing to get to to, to conduct an attack. If they start bur- like buying a lot of cell phones and burner cell phones, what does this mean from an investigative perspective? It means that they're increasing their operational security. That could be an indication that they're moving into an operational phase of their attack planning. So the financial t- intelligence there tells us a lot more than the actual cost piece does. Um, and then even in some very inexpensive attacks, there's often financial expenditures that happen. Um, or financial preparations that happen. So even if the individual isn't necessarily buying um, material for the attack, you know, maybe he or she has already acquired the things that they need for their attack, they may be making other financial preparations like closing bank accounts, um, putting financing in place for children, as we saw in the case of an attack in the United States. Um, So there's all these sort of financial behaviors that occur around the attack that are also important to understand, and that's part of the financial intelligence piece. And so the cost of terrorism argument really kind of obliterates all of those very important aspects and seems to sort of throw out the whole counter-terrorist financing regime with just the dismissal of the wave of a hand. And I think that's pretty wrong. Yes, thank you. And to follow up on this, if you take the really uh, very inexpensive attacks, or at least the attacks that we can see, or or uh, intelligence that we have that can that we can see that were relatively inexpensive, how, how exactly do they give you um, uh, inroads, insights into what's happening? For example, the Nice attack um, only cost, so it seemed. Uh, 250 euros to the perpetrator because he bought himself an automatic handgun. He also hired a lorry, but he never paid for it because he k- killed himself in the attack. Um, so how, how do you view an attack like this? Or the other attack that I came across is the attack of David uh, Somboli in Munich in July 2016. It's only a week after the Nice attack. This was a little bit more an expensive attack, but it was a young guy um, um, who per- who purchased a gun and ammunition on the darknet for approximately 4,000 euros or something like that. So that's more money, but still probably something that he had in his account. So 
can you briefly also explain to us what does it mean if you really have so little financial details? Can you even make something out of that? This is a sort of a, a question that I get a lot of. I get a lot of questions like this from the finance, the regulatory sector and financial institutions as well, because they're really trying to use this information to detect anomalous activity in accounts. And the short answer to this is I would say, no, you can't start an investigation from this kind of information because it's so innocuous. It's, you know, renting a truck. It's something that lots of us do all the time. This isn't the place where you're going to begin your investigation. But if you have existing derogatory information, maybe an existing investigation into someone who you believe to be radicalized, and you're, you're sort of wondering, are they going to mobilize to violence? Are they not? This kind of information starts to become very important, very interesting, especially when there are no plausible alternative hypotheses to explain the activity or behavior. Um, so this is the kind of thing that we, we talk about a lot in the intelligence world, is sort of thinking through what could this person be doing? So in the Nice attack, do they have a reason to have rented this vehicle, this truck? Um, and if there's no plausible alternative explanation, then maybe you, it sort of narrows down the possible pathway uh, of what they're planning on doing. And if there are plausible alternative explanations, probably you're still going to keep an eye on it, but um, you know, maybe we're not going to red alert right yet. So those are some of the ways that the financial intelligence piece can be useful. But yeah, I would definitely say that it's important to not initiate investigations from some of these very innocuous activities mm. and behaviors. Yes, so indeed context uh, is most pivotal in, in, in such intelligence-related uh, case, cases. Um, to zoom out a bit, please tell us about your book. How do you how did you set up the research? Did you exactly investigate to come up with all the insights that you collected in your book? Yeah, I think I, I cheated a little bit because I was able to use a lot of the research, sort of the overarching framework that I'd already developed through my work in the intelligence world. Um, obviously, everything in the book itself is unclassified, but the way that I thought about it was already structured from the volumes of material that I was reading through my work. Um, but then to really flesh it out and to sort of think through this in a methodical way, I decided on a case study approach. So basically, I identified about 50 groups and 50 attacks or plots that I wanted to look at and looked at all in detail, all of the financing mechanisms involved. And so I walked through you know, all the different groups that I chose. So obviously things like Al-Qaeda, um, the IRA, all, all these different groups across a bunch of different ideologies, really across as many ideologies as I could, and could across reasonably come up with. So 30, 40 years uh, time span is, is the, the backdrop, isn't it? Exactly, yes. Yeah. So it really covers quite a long, long time span because I did want to get that sort of macro level view of what financing has looked like over time. So, you know, walking through those case studies and so now I've got all of these case studies that aren't actually in the book in and of themselves, because that, that would be a bit of a dry read, but you know, we've broken them down into different mechanisms. Um, and so that's the foundation of the research. Now, there, I do want to talk a little bit about some of those limitations, because I think that's really important. So I try to quantify some of this activity in terms of really, you know, a basic counting of who's using what mechanisms where, but it doesn't tell us how that's changed over time. That you know, there's just really not enough detailed and nuanced information to be able to make reasonable judgments about that. Um, but what I'm hoping for here is that now that we have this sort of baseline 
understanding and quantification of the methods and mechanisms that are used, that from here, we can then start to talk about changes in behavior. Because I'm often asked in my work, well, what's changed in terrorist financing? And really, not that much has changed in terrorist financing over the last 30 or 40 years. Um, you know, not in a way that I can say concretely or with a lot of confidence. Um, but now, hopefully, this is sort of that first stepping stone to be able to do that. That is such a great conclusion for an historian like me, who's always on the outlook for continuities and discontinuities and developments through time and not just focusing on general uh, categorical um, um, indicators. Um, one more question about this approach, because that's really so valuable. It's evidence-led, it's based on empirical data. Uh, but regarding that approach, what is again, new about your approach if you compare it to the work done by Colin Clark, Wittig, Vittori, Kenny, who also worked uh, on terrorism financing. So apart from the empirical data, which is in itself extremely valuable, how else did you approach this subject compared to these? Well, I, yeah. I would say that this isn't a huge departure from their work. I think that it builds on their work. And, you know, I talk about that very much in the introduction, um, pointing out how this sort of evolves from that work. Um, I think that part of it is really about expanding some of the mechanisms that we're talking about here. So um, Vittori and Clark both talk through a lot of the raise, use, and move, store aspects. Um, I think there, I, I expand a little bit more on the management of funds and certainly on the obscuring of funds. So the financial tradecraft piece is something that I haven't seen in, in any other literature, certainly not expressed in, in those concrete, clear terms. Um, and a lot of the work that exists in terrorist financing tends to be quite group-based or potentially even attack-focused. So I'm trying to just bring it all together, create that overarching framework and sort of see where we stand and sort of see where our understanding lies. Yes, perhaps we could could bring the discussion a bit further in in describing the insights and the findings that are the bulk of your work. One very important insight is, I think, the distinction that you make and systematically make between financing for and by the organization and financing for and by um, operational plots and attacks. Could you say something about that distinction, why it's so important to you? Yeah, this is one of those things that I knew to be true when I started. Uh, you know, it's in it's in Colin Clark's work. I think it's in, in Vittori's work as well. Um, but as I started to pull the case studies together, it was first of all striking to me that the mechanisms used were quite similar. So how a terrorist organization will raise money is very similar to how what a, a, an operational cell will use it uh, or raise it. And, and so those, those high-level mechanisms are pretty similar, which was a bit surprising to me. Um, there's obviously differences in terms of access, you know, things like operational cells are rarely state-sponsored, not never, but rarely state-sponsored. Um, so there are some differences there. But when we think about it from a counter-terrorist financing perspective, a lot of our structures around counter-terrorist financing were, were created to counter group-level financing. So fairly large sums of money. And we see this reflected in a lot of the mandatory reporting in the financial sector. So, you know, it's required in a lot of countries, you have to report transactions of $10,000 or more or equivalent currencies. Um, but that's not true from an operational perspective. You know, if you, we've already talked through this a little bit, but a terrorist attack that costs $10,000 is actually fairly rare. 
certainly today. And most tariffs won't sort of fund that in one transaction. So we're talking about much smaller transactions. The operational and organizational use of funds is really different as well. So organizationally, groups are using money to pay salaries, to um, maintain operational security for safe houses, for all these kinds of things. At the at the cell or operational level, a lot of those things are happening as well, but the scope and scale is so, so different, so, so much smaller, um, so much more innocuous that it makes it more difficult to detect in our structure of counter-terrorist financing. So I think making those distinctions really clear can inform any further developments in countering the financing of terrorism. Thank you. That's a very clear uh, answer. And can you explain a little bit more on, on the raising of money? Because lots of the chapters in your book are devoted to that aspect. Terrorist groups and organizations are raising money. The cells are raising money. How do they do it? And what are the motives? Could you say something about that? Mm-hmm. The raising of funds by terrorist groups you know, happens in a number of different ways and sells as well, but I think maybe I'll take them separately. So at the group level, I would say you know, a lot of it is coming from state sponsors. There's been great work done on this by a number of different people. I reference most of them in my book. Um, there's also uh, one of the things that I wanted to make very clear when we talk about how terrorist organizations raise money is the use of identity-based support networks. So You'll often hear the term diaspora financing, and I find this term to be just so widely, wildly uninformative because it implies that an entire diaspora is funding a terrorist group. And, and the most common example of this is the LTT in Sri Lanka. But the mechanisms of what are happening here are really different. So, yes, the diaspora, the, the, a Tamil diaspora has been extorted to fund the LTTE in a number of different countries, but I wouldn't necessarily, uh, but you would be very wrong to say that the entire diaspora supports the LTTE. They may be forced to contribute to that activity. Um, but then there are also networks within diaspora communities or even without outside of diaspora communities that may also be supporting terrorist organizations. So I, we, I think it's more important to think about these as identity-based support networks that can provide donations to terrorist organizations. They also, terrorist groups will also raise money from criminal activities, um, all those kinds of things. So there's, there's quite a number of ways, including kidnapping for ransom. At the operational level, a lot of these mechanisms also exist. Um, interestingly enough, though, one of their, I think we would assume that terrorist groups are funding a lot of these terrorist attacks, but actually not quite as much as, there's not quite as much evidence for that as, as I think that we would assume. Um, a lot of them are now self-financed. I think this is one of those things that has probably changed over time. But even when I look back historically, a lot of attacks, even in even shortly after 9-11, were self-financed. So um, I'm not sure that this trend is as new as we sometimes think it is. So they're raising money through their own personal um, funds. They're raising it through identity-based support networks, sometimes from terrorist groups, rarely from state sponsors, often through criminal activity, and I would say increasingly through things like online financial crimes. Yeah, I think this is highly fascinating. And if I may add to this with a sort of insight that um, Peter Newman wrote about the crime terror nexus. And he writes about the crime terror nexus from the perspective of radicalization. So first person 
um, uh, motivational beliefs. How do people enter into terrorism crimes? Is it motivated by ideas or the ideology? Is it a way of atoning for previous uh, form? Um, if you take that insight on the crime terror nexus, of which Peter Newman says that there's quite, and Rajan Basra, there's quite some evidence pointing to the fact that people engaging in terrorism were previously involved in, in some way or the other of criminal activities. Could you say something about what you say is that there is also, from your point uh, of view, there's also a nexus between crime and terrorism because so many cells and loan operators are indeed self-financing their terrorism. So did they engage in criminal activity to finance their terrorism or were they already engaged in criminal activity and then decided to do some terrorism with it to bring these two discussions together? Could you could you say something about that? From the case study work that I did, I would say that the majority of the time, the people who were financing their activities through criminal activity had that as a pre-existing skill set. The majority didn't sort of develop that skill set when they were already in, when they had already sort of become radicalized and were involved in, in the terrorist media. Instead, they were using those skills that they'd already developed. So, you know, people who are already um, implicated in low-level frauds or counterfeiting and stuff would bring that in to the, whatever terrorist cell they were they were working with. So at that level, I would say that those are pre-existing skill sets. I would also add, though, that every once in a while there there would be occasional um, sort of schemes or scams that would arise as part of the plot. Um, so sometimes individuals and cells would identify, you know, low-level criminality as a way to create an influx of funds. But these were not generally well-developed schemes. Often they weren't all that profitable. Um, and sometimes they were just downright failures. So that's sort of how I see the crime terror nexus at the operational level. At the organizational level, I think it's a little bit different. Um, I think that terrorist groups have and continue to develop really large-scale criminal enterprises to help finance their activity. That's, you know, it often starts as extortion and taxation, but can evolve into basically inserting themselves into whatever kind of criminal economy exists in their area of operation or control. So even if they ideologically say that they're opposed to exploiting or engaging in criminal activity, most of the time they end up doing it, particularly if it's lucrative. They have a very basic need to meet their bottom line expenses. Um, and so they'll abandon their ideology to do that. So would you say then that there are a lot of terrorist organizations or groups that go for it for profit in the end and abandon their ideological goals? Because that's quite a statement. I think that the profit motive is often just under the surface of the ideology for a lot of terrorists. Um, there's a lot of questions for me around what, how terrorist leaders make themselves richer over time. There's pretty solid evidence that a lot of them do divert funds from terrorist organizations for their own self-aggrandizement, for their own personal wealth, for their own luxurious living situations. Can, can you um, give some examples? Um, I think that there are some good examples um, in the Taliban in terms of some of their leadership diverting funds from the organization and holding pretty significant sums of money in Gulf states. Um, there's definitely some suggestion that there were some people in the Islamic State who were diverting funds for their own personal use as well. 
I think ultimately what ends up happening is that when you have these large revenue bases, which a lot of terrorist groups do, particularly if they control territory, um, even if they're, they have a lot of expenses, that there's a lot of cash floating through. There's a lot of access to wealth. And people see that and, you know, their base or nature, even if they are sort of motivated by these extremist ideologies, is for self-preservation, is for um, enriching themselves. And I think it's a very interesting tension between how we sometimes think about terrorists as being driven by these ideologies, by these motivations. But I think that it's sometimes a little bit more complicated than that. Mm -hmm. oh, this is really fascinating. And this brings me to the role of women in these groups. Um, women enter terrorist groups often as a spouse, a wife, a mother, and they are also recruited in that sense. Not always, but for example in Jihadist terrorism mostly. Uh, in revolutionary terrorism they were far more activist. Uh, but in your book you write that there is a very specific role for women and it, that it is a commonly overlooked aspect, you write, of terrorism financing that the gender dimension uh, is so important. Could you explain that to us? Yeah, this is one of those things that I actually didn't know about as much when I started writing this book, which is interesting considering I've actually done quite a lot of work on women in terrorism. Um, but as I started doing this research, it became clear to me that women were filling the role of financiers and facilitators more and more in terrorist organizations. Now, I think there's a couple of caveats that I want to put on this. Um, the first one is that the role of individuals involved in sort of that logistical aspect of terrorist organizations is less well studied. There's far less information on it than the role of um, you know, the bomb throwers, the suicide bombers. It's availability of information uh, that creates a little bit of a bias there and maybe also a little bit of interest, lack of interest in sort of, sort of those logistical roles. And then, of course, we can compound that with lack of information about women involved, women's involvement in terrorism. Um, you and I both know this. It's often very easy to count the women who are involved in suicide bombings or operational activity, but then trying to figure out who their roles within a, an organizational structure becomes much more difficult. We have our own biases. We have sort of the, the narratives of the terrorist organizations that they're putting out and sort of trying to unpack all of that and figure out what women are actually doing in these organizations is, is quite difficult. Um, But over the last five or six years, I would say, I have seen an increasing amount of information pointing to the role of women as financial facilitators and financiers for terrorist activity. Some of that is in the context of a terrorist group. Um, so sometimes they'll identify women as good conduits uh, of money, as good sort, uh, people to organize groups to raise money from those identity-based support networks, for instance. In other cases, women are sort of self-nominating as financiers for groups. So they'll um, try to gather money from friends and family or from their own personal wealth and send it to terrorist groups, terrorist actors. Um, so that's sort of what I'm seeing now. Again, I think that there's availability of information that's maybe compounding, that maybe pointing this to an emerging trend that it may have actually been existing for a lot longer. So, you know, with social media, with increased digitization of news media, it is easier to see a lot of these things than it was 10 or 15 years ago. So I want to caution that I don't think this is a maybe a huge diversion in terms of their roles with the terrorist organizations, but it is something that we have more evidence for in recent years. So you would say that this, this, this talk about uh, there being a glass ceiling for female terrorists within jihadist organizations, that it's perhaps... Um, a little bit biased if you fail to look at the role 
of women in terrorist financing. That I mean, the role of women in previous terrorist organizations, the revolutionary ones, also the right-wing extremist ones to a certain extent, is very visible. For journalism, it's far less so. But you're saying that perhaps behind the scenes in financial records, um, support networks, um, uh, financial recruit networks, that their role is bigger? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's it. I, I think, though, I'm not entirely sure how much influence they have, though. This is the difficult thing that, you know, we, we can sort of study their roles and sort of make some judgments about what we think is happening and, and their influence. But even if a woman is, you know, leading a financing network, it's not entirely clear to me that she's able to then exert influence on operational decisions within the terrorist group. Um, and I think it's probably quite situationally dependent. Um, but it's it's such an interesting area, and and I think one that we've just really started only started to scratch the surface of. Yes, there were some cases of women who were apprehended and uh, convicted in the Netherlands and Belgium, uh, also in the earlier stages uh, during the times of Al Qaeda, that they were the ones who were recruiting young people and also giving them money to go abroad and join the fight. So they were really contributing more than just arranging money for already uh, made plans. They were also concocting the plans. So there's some evidence that points to that. Um, that brings me to, which is also overlapping with the role of women in support networks, to the role of uh, charitable institutions. You already mentioned diaspora financing, and you said that it may be a two-blanket approach and a two-blanket um, um, reproach to, to look at it that way. But there's a very important topic here and you write about it in your book yourself about how charities for example in recent years islamic charities contribute to ter terrorism financing um, i would like to talk to you a little bit about that because there's all also this huge threat that we are overblowing this and that completely legitimate uh, completely benign charities are being securitized and criminalized. And this is a very serious critique that has been leveled against terrorism financing, counter-terrorist financing approaches. That's also out there, that people are being blamed for terrorism financing and they weren't doing that at all. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, there's a lot of tensions here in terms of how terrorist actors exploit the charitable sector and how we react to that. So. In, in my book, I really try to lay out a typology of how terrorists have exploited the charitable sector. You know, it really ranges from creating entire front organizations that are, that are really a whole part of the terrorist organization to, at the very back end of the spectrum, the bottom end of the spectrum, um, individuals who are just sort of saying that they're raising money for a charitable purpose and then are using that money to... Um, either travel to join a terrorist organization or sending that money to a terrorist group. And in between those two ends of the spectrum, there's a range of activities and a range, range in terms of the complicity of the individuals involved in the charitable organizations and their association to terrorism. So most of the time, what I've seen is one or two individuals in a position of control or influence within an organization, a nonprofit or charitable organization, who are diverting some or all of the funds to um, either a terrorist organization in, in fairly extreme cases or to 
other groups that provide support services in an area that's controlled or influenced by a terrorist group, and that allows the terrorist organization to either siphon funds from those programs or tax them or extort money from them. So there's a lot of different levels of complicity involved in, in this typology. And I think that's one of the areas where we need to be very nuanced in terms of our reaction to this. So in the counter-terrorist financing world, there's you know the FATF recommendation eight that says that we need to take a risk-based approach to regulating the charitable sector, but that there is you know, risk of abuse by terrorist organizations. Um, and I think this is where we have started to see some of those tensions where the, the civil society organizations have started to push back on this recommendation saying that it's creating an undue burden on them. It's creating real um, human rights and even gender implications and harms for the work that they're they're trying to do. And um, I, it's one of those areas, I do a, quite a lot of professional work in this space as well, advising civil society organizations, nonprofits and charities. Um, and it is not an easy conversation to have because there are real burdens that are being placed on these organizations. They're you know, reporting requirements, uh, documentation keeping, limitations on who they can work with, where they can work. Um, but there are also very clear examples of terrorist organizations who exploit this activity. So I think the best example that I can give is that de demonstrates these tensions is the case of Somalia. So Somalia for a long time has been controlled to lesser or greater extents by uh, al-Shabaab. Um, but they've also, but Somalia has also suffered tremendous humanitarian crises in, in that time. And so we know that al-Shabaab finances itself by taxing and extorting money, goods and services from humanitarian civil society aid organizations. So what do we do? Do we cut off all aid and let the Somali people who are under the control area, the control and influence of al-Shabaab suffer for that taxation and extortion activity? Or do we accept that there are some terrorist financing activities that will happen because of the aid that's being delivered there? Um, and this is a constant tension in this space. And I think we're seeing it again in Afghanistan as well. We know that the Taliban will profit from any aid that's delivered to Afghanistan, pretty much regardless of our best efforts to prevent that from happening. And what's the decision that we make there? Do we let the Afghan population population starve in the winter, or do we accept the fact that there's going to be some profit made by the Taliban? And these are the tensions that exist there. Um, and it's it's not an easy conversation to have. No, but it's very important that we do have, and that you're raising it here, these tensions. Uh, what, what always struck me as well is um, there were also some um, affairs related to things like this in the Netherlands, where the Ministry of Foreign Affairs was funding civil society organizations in Africa, um, where also from a counter-terrorist perspective, you need those organizations in place to know about the key people, the key organizations, also from an information perspective. So you're bringing in the tension, very important tension between letting them starve or financing those groups. There's also this tension between different counter-terrorism mechanisms as such. You have the, the mechanism and the, the, the risk management approach by the Foreign Action Task Force that says don't finance them because there's the risk of terrorism. On the other hand, you have the counter-terrorism perspective and purpose that you need to collect information. You also need to have people on the ground for de-radicalization and um, integration purposes. So 
um, I think the danger is that if these tensions are obliterated, overlooked and not brought to discussion at all, and also the financial action task force initiatives, the, 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 the counterterrorism financing should be brought into balance with other counterterrorism efforts, not just with humanitarian um, tensions that are also there, but also within the counterterrorism domains, there are different mechanisms. How do you see that? Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And I think this points to a bit of an issue in sort of the counterterrorism, counterterrorist financing world, um, where I think these two things have been kept more separate than they should be. Um, most, a lot of counterterrorism practitioners that I know don't really know anything about the financing piece. Um, and so trying to get them to integrate that into broader counterterrorism plans is a bit of a struggle. It does become a bit of a technical conversation, um, but it's even reflected in how a lot of domestic um, legislation and jurisdictions and, and regu regulatory agencies are set up under different ministries. So you'll have one that's sort of managing the counterterrorism piece and one that's managing the counterterrorist financing piece. And sort of trying to bring all of that together is really important because ultimately what we're trying to do with counterterrorist financing is to reduce levels of terrorism. So reduce their ability right. to conduct attacks, all of that kind of thing. Um, but I think we sometimes lose that in the conversation around the financing piece. Yeah, thank you for making that um, uh, uh, argument here. Uh, do you see more dangers of focusing overly on, on the financing of terrorism? I know it's your work and it's, it's your job and it's your approach. In our next session of this podcast, we have a book talk with Marike de Goede. You may know her work, Speculative Security. And she is one who focuses very much on the dangers of um, yeah, perhaps contributing too much to the counterterrorism financing domain. How I, do you see more dangers there? Do you think it's in balance at present? I love her work, so I'm very excited <laughs> to to hear that podcast. Um, I think, yeah, it's a bit of a difficult one. I think both perspectives are actually right at the moment. So, I think that we haven't integrated enough of the counterterrorist financing piece into our our approach to counter to counterterrorism, but we also have really not integrated and embodied some of the risks that are associated with that. So one of the things that I like to think about is, um, I think this is best illustrated by, by the issue of financial inclusion. So the idea that, you know, including people in the, the formal financial system actually makes everybody safer um, because, you know, they're using registered and regulated financial services. Um, but a lot of our policies and practices to counter the financing of terrorism don't think about inclusive inclusivity by design. So we'll sometimes try to mitigate some of the unintended consequences after the fact, whereas I think that we should really be designing these our policies and practices from the beginning with inclusivity, with human rights approaches, with um, you know maybe privacy approaches from the beginning and not trying to fix them from the back end. And so this is where uh, Marika's work really informs some of the work that I try to do. I always try to keep that balance in, but we're nowhere near balanced enough. And there is some work that's being done right now by the Financial Action Task Force on unintended consequences, but we are some distance from being in a place where we're in balance here. Thank you for that uh, openness and honesty in your answer. That brings me to the last question already for this podcast, unfortunately. Um, that's the question about the future of terrorism and counterterrorism financing. 
I mean, will we see terrorists investing more in cryptocurrency, like you write that right-wing extremists, for example, do more with bitcoins? Is that the future? Will it stay the same? How, how, how do you look ahead for the next couple of years? When I think about the future of terrorist financing, I think a lot about the trends that are happening in the global economy. Um, so things like decentralized finance, cryptocurrency, uh, NFTs, all of these sort of newfangled financial instruments um, are things that criminals will be exploiting and do exploit. And to a certain extent, I think terrorists will also be exploiting. I think, though, that their level of adoption of a lot of these financial technologies will reflect society's adoption of them. So, you know, if we all become very, um, if, if cryptocurrency, for example, becomes a mainstream payment mechanism, then I think that will also be a mainstream activity for terrorists to engage. And I don't think that they're necessarily very different from that perspective from society and financial systems writ large. The one caveat that I'll say to that is pretty much on the extreme right, but specifically on anti-government uh, extremists, they have an ideological inclination to use um, cryptocurrencies, particularly um, you know, things like Bitcoin and Monero that have a high degree of privacy, um, are able to facilitate the movement of funds internationally, but particularly because they're not created by a government. So they're not backed by a government. So there's an ideological affinity for those kinds of um, currencies. From an operational perspective, though, I think that the future of finance is what's happening on the ground. So if we're talking about a terrorist organization, a terrorist cell that's um, tried to finance activities in the Netherlands, the trends that you see in terms of how you move money, how you sort of finance your day-to-day -day lives are the kinds of things that we'll see from terrorists as well. So I don't think that there's a huge departure there, but we just need to understand how they integrate changes in our financial systems into their practices. And the counter-terrorist financing piece, I think, is a little bit of a difficult one. I think that there's going to be, and there we have a history of basically identifying vulnerabilities in new financial technologies and really overinflating or hyping the possibility or risks of terrorist use of them. And I think that's going to probably continue in the short to medium term. I don't think we've moved into an evidence-based policymaking framework for counter-terrorist financing yet. So that sort of answers my really utmost last question. Will you focus more on women again or on terrorism financing? But I think we want you to focus more on terrorism and counter-terrorism financing to bring in this very important balance. So will you? Will you continue this work? I will. I am definitely continuing this work. So uh, for my PhD dissertation at the Norman Patterson School here in Ottawa, um, I am doing work on the effects and outcomes of counter-terrorist financing policies and practices since 9-11, basically trying to figure out what have they achieved, if anything, um, because there is no, there are no good measures of what they've, they've done. What, have they reduced levels of terrorism? Have they made us safer? We have no idea at this point. I have a bit of an idea now, but um, there's nothing published at the moment that tells us about that. And so the argument for investing more in counter-terrorist financing is unclear. The argument for reforming the system is entirely unclear. Um, so that's where I'm focusing a lot of my activities now. We are very happy to hear that and we want to read about your outcomes. When, when will your uh, thesis be ready, the PhD? 
Um, yeah, so I think the thesis itself will be ready in a couple of years yet. I still have a fair bit of field work to do, but I am trying to publish little pieces of that research as we go. That is very happy to hear. Thank you for that. Well, thank you, Jessica, the president and principal consultant with Inside Threat Intelligence and the author of Illicit Money, Financing Terrorism in the 21st Century. The book is available with Lynn Riemer Publishers. And thank you so very much again, Jessica, for your talk today. Bye. Thank you so much. It was a great conversation. And that concludes today's episode. This podcast was brought to you by the Terrorism and Political Violence Journal, Utrecht University, and the hub Security and Open Societies. The sound design was done by Peter Fein. For more information on this podcast series, including what to expect in the next episode, please check the description. For now, we thank you very much for listening, and please join us again for the next episode of Terrorism and Political Violence, the podcast. <laughs>